Fine Music Radio. People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trojan welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note, a program with quite a difference because we are in the middle of the North Atlantic. We're not sure about the middle, but we are between Tenerife and Southampton, cruising along the North Atlantic, having boarded in Cape Town, stopped at Wolfish Bay, and then nine magnificent days at sea on this magnificent ship, the Queen Mary II. And by the 1970s, it certainly looked as if QE2 would be the last of the great ocean liners, However, over three decades later, the world watched in awe as Queen Mary II, the largest, longest, grandest and most expensive ocean liner ever to be constructed, set sail on her maiden voyage in 2004. With 14 decks, beautiful lounges, dining rooms and a ballroom, QM2 evokes the glamour of the golden age of ocean travel. And imagine my surprise when I discovered that on board with us was the man who actually designed the ship from scratch, Dr. Stephen Payne, OBE. And I've managed to get Stephen here to talk to us about how he created really a nautical marvel. So Stephen, welcome and thank you. Hello, and very pleased to be here. And you're broadcasting to South Africa at the moment, so how about that? No, that's, that's um, <laughs> very fine. I remember when you did your talk about the ship, you said that Blue Peter played quite a major part in your life, not only becoming a nautical engineer, but to get the ship up and running. Tell me a little bit about that, because it was quite a story. Well, Blue Peter is a children's television programme broadcast by the BBC, and in fact, it's the longest-running children's programme anywhere in the world. It airs twice a week, and the programmes are about half an hour, 40 minutes in length. And certainly when I was growing up in the 1960s and into the 1970s, it was the programme for children to watch because it was informative, challenging, had all sorts of um, features on the programme and the like. And in 1965, one of the presenters boarded the old Cunard ship, Queen Elizabeth, sailing from Cherbourg to Southampton. And during that time on board, she visited the galley and the bridge and the engine room. And although we only had grainy black and white television in those days, as a young lad <laughs> watching this, I was absolutely fascinated. And I thought then, wouldn't it be great to be able to grow up and perhaps design something bigger and better than the Queen. How Elizabeth. old were you then to have these grand thoughts? <laughs> well, I've looked back at the the programme, as I say, it was broadcast in 1965, and so I was five years old. OK, so already you had, I almost want to say delusions of grandeur, which one <laughs> does when one's small, isn't one? But look what happened. That's right. And of course, um, the next part of the story is um, several years later, in January 1972, the same ship, having left Cunard service, is now in Hong Kong Harbour, being refitted for service to be a floating university, owned by a Hong Kong shipping magnate, C.Y. Tung. 
And unfortunately, um, on the 9th of January, early in the morning, several fires broke out simultaneously along the length of the ship, and the ship sank in Hong Kong Harbour, largely thought to be an uh, act of arson from people that didn't agree with uh, C.Y. Tung. And Blue Peter, every year, produces a Blue Peter annual. And for Christmas 1972, I, I got my annual. And there was a feature all about Queen Elizabeth, very informative, nice cutaway drawing and the like. But there was a, a final sentence that really angered me because it said that uh, the Queen Elizabeth was the last of a great age, a superliner, and nothing like her will ever be built again. <laughs> and for somebody who for many years, you know, from the age of five, had had that desire to do it, having been inspired by Blue Peter, and suddenly Blue Peter were telling me it would never happen, um, got very angry. And I was just fortunate that we were learning how to write letters at school. And my English teacher, Pat Bootle, who I still know, um, she said the most important letter that you can learn to write is a letter of complaint. Really? If you can effectively <laughs> complain, you'll invariably get what you want in life. So I um, sent my letter off to Blue Peter and they came back and said, oh, very interesting, and, but don't be disappointed if it never happens. How old were you then, Dr. Payne? Twelve. Twelve, okay. Twelve, okay. just okay. coming up to twelve. Mm -hmm. And then when eventually I did design and was in charge of the construction of the ship, um, Blue Peter came on board, and whereas previously I'd only received the lowly blue Blue Peter badge that they <laughs> yes, gave out, yes. they um, gave me my gold badge, which is their highest honour, and they said I was the um, oldest person except one to have received the gold badge, and the other person, of course, was Her Majesty the Queen. Good grief. Not bad company. Not would bad you company. Say. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, now I want to go into some nitty gritty with you in a moment, but I'm quite intrigued to know what sort of music the designer of this huge, magnificent ship listens to music wise. What have you chosen for us and why? Well, I've got quite a diverse mix um, some classical, some um, contemporary, and some um, sort of mid range and that, but. The first piece of music I thought I would um, introduce to you is uh, Heather Small, who was the lead singer of M People. She sang at the naming ceremony of Queen Mary to the song Proud, What Have You Done to Be um, Proud? And we were all on the quayside in a tent during the naming ceremony of Queen Mary too, and she sang this, this marvellous song, and then the backdrop, of the uh, the tent or marquee fell away and there on view to everybody inside was was the bow of the Queen Mary too so it was a uh, a tremendous moment for me and, and and for the ship as well okay let's listen in to something directly concerned with Queen Mary too Reflections of the fears I know I 
small there and a song called proud which as you heard was an integral part of the naming ceremony of queen mary ii and my guest on people of note this week as we are floating in north atlantic en route to southampton is the man who actually designed the ship from the keel up dr stephen payne obe so i said dr payne that i wanted to get involved with some nitty-gritty and so it all—it seems too grand that you had this idea of building a great big ocean liner. How did you ever think you'd actually get it going? What then happened? Well, I, I went through secondary school and um, did various exams at school. And then it came to deciding about going to university. 
And all through my, my schooling, I'd said to the school that I wanted to be a naval architect. But um, there wasn't really anybody in the careers department that um, really understood that. And they kept saying that naval architecture, engineering in general in the UK was um, finished. And that um, as I was also very interested in chemistry, I should go and do a chemistry degree at Imperial College in London. And not having had anybody from my family who'd ever been to university before, being totally reliant on the advice of the school and everything, I decided that, okay, that's maybe what I should do. So I started off at Imperial College doing chemistry. And then I met my former physics master, Justin Johnson, who, who was now head of physics. And he said to me that um, he had wanted to speak to me and advise me, but the careers department basically said, no, that's our job, keep out. And he said he always felt that I'd been given the wrong advice and that I should have gone to university to study naval architecture. And so chatting with him, he said, well, you know, you could still change, so why don't you change? And so with his help, I got another year's grant that was essential for me to be able to, uh, to change. And I went to the University of Southampton, studied there for three years. And during that period, I was in the Royal Naval Reserve, which the university had an integral uh, unit with a small minesweeper, which was very useful because my course was um, very theoretical. So it was good to get on an actual ship and tie ropes, steer the ship and learn about navigation and the like. So that was great fun. It also generated a, a welcome income. And in fact, from the proceeds of, of doing the, the Navy work, I was able to do a trip on the QE2 after I left university. So it was a, a happy coincidence, all of that. But uh, that's how I ended up doing naval architecture. And then I applied to various companies um, to do passenger ship naval architecture, and there wasn't anything avail available immediately. So I did nine months at Marconi Radar in Chelmsford, because they had an opening for a, a naval architect. And then a consultancy in London called Technical Marine Planning, which to all intents and purposes was Carnival's new build um, design group, got in contact and said, oh, we're looking for a junior naval architect. Would you be interested? So I jumped at it <laughs> sure. and ended up being there six, uh, 26 years and, and ending up being... Um, Vice President, Chief Naval Architect of the, the whole group. I just want to take a step back, Dr. Payne. Were ships always, apart from what you saw in Blue Peter when you were six years old, were ships and shipping and passenger liners always uh, of great interest to you, sort of a passion? Yes, very much so. Very much so. I, I was always fascinated. And one of the very earliest technical books I um, bought was a reprint of the shipbuilder from 1907, which was um, a facsimile of the Mauritania oh, wow. um, being built and her achievements and everything. So um, I poured over every detail of that, even though obviously it was uh, ancient naval architecture, really. Mm -hmm. But um, 
No, it gave me a lot of um, insight and, and the interest just grew and grew. So now you're at university. Um, uh, you said you spent 26 years there. So I think let us before, because this is where it gets exciting now, where we're going to get to the point where you decided that you were going to build this huge monolith. No, monolith is unkind, isn't it? <laughs> Bear moth. <laughs> this huge magnificent. Leviathan, <laughs> a much better word. So let's have another piece of music and then we'll talk about laying the keel of the Queen Mary II. What's next on your list? Well, I thought um, maybe a bit precocious, but um, I, I thought it rather apt. And uh, <laughs> Frank Sinatra's "I Did It My Way." Exactly, that's what you did. <laughs> Why would that be precocious? <laughs> I bet you. It, uh, may I say, and I don't mean this rudely, if you weren't precocious, the ship may not be here. No, that, that's I've been told that many times. Yes. <laughs> yes. Let's celebrate with Frank Sinatra. And now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did it my way Regrets, I've had a few But then again to mention I did what I had to do saw it through without exemption I planned each charted course each careful step along the byway and more much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was I feel my share of losing And now as tears subside I find it all so amusing To think I did all that And may I say 
not in a shy way Oh no, oh no, not me I did it my way For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself Frank Sinatra there, one of his famous, almost anthem songs, I Did It My Way. And the choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Dr. Stephen Payne. We're aboard the Queen Mary 2, somewhere between Tenerife and Southampton. The first day that we've been at sea for, for two weeks where it's been cloudy and a little rainy. And we're about to pass the Bay of Biscay, which should be interesting. But um, I want to talk to Stephen, Dr. Stephen Payne about the actual building because that is what he did. He designed the ship. So how did you design it? Did you sit down with a piece of paper and a whiskey and a pencil? Well, first off, it, it came around in a, in a strange way in that um, Cunard in the 1990s had been sold to an Anglo-Norwegian um, group called Caverna. Mm-hmm. And they had bought Trafalgar House, which had been the parent company of Cunard, basically for Trafalgar House's construction company, the Bovis Cementation and the like. So they weren't really interested in Cunard, and you could see that the company was beginning to sort of run down. And there was a lot of speculation that it may be bought by the Prudential Insurance Company and that. And you think, well, what would an insurance company do with something like this, Cunard? So I asked Caverna, because we were building ships with them up in Helsinki, mm-hmm. I asked them if I could do a trip on QE2, giving some lectures, and they, they agreed. And it was during my voyage on the ship that it was actually announced that um, Carnival had bought Cunard, much to everybody's uh, amazement. And then I was called to the radio room and I received a call to say, we want you back as soon as possible because we want you to start work on a ship that will eventually replace the QE2 on the transatlantic route. What good news that was after that business at the beginning of saying there will be no more. That's that's right, that's Mm -hmm. right. But then the first big battle was really convincing everybody involved that we needed a proper liner and not just a cruise ship because Carnival had only dealt 
with cruise ships. They had never had a, a liner, although their early ships were of the liner type, but they operated them as, as cruise ships. And the sort of realisation, what does it actually mean financially? Because at the end of the day, this is a business. It, yeah. It's here yeah. um, to create wealth for shareholders. Um, what does that mean? Well, the extra strength, the extra power that you need for transatlantic liner, the loss of earning capacity because you have to have it um, shaped and, and rounded and pointed and the like, all that adds up to about 40% premium. And so the bosses at Carnival, Mickey Arison amongst them, said, well, if we're going to build this ship, we've either got the opportunity of putting our money into more cruise ships or this liner, and so you've got to design something that's going to overcome that 40% differential. <laughs> Otherwise, we won't do it. We'll just build cruise ships. And that was a challenge to you. And that was a challenge to me. And they were sort of questioning, well, why do you need, why do you want this extra strength and, and the like? Mm. So I remember in the 1960s, an Italian passenger ship crossing the Atlantic, the Michelangelo, um, was struck by a, a large wave and it basically demolished the area below the bridge. So the superstructure front was ripped open and people were um, washed out into the sea and drowned. And I said, if you build a cruise ship and you operate it as a liner, i.e. you're on an express routing and not slowing down and the like, which you have to do to meet the schedule, Invariably, you're going to come across waves that could potentially do the same to our new ship. And if that happens, then everything's ruined because your reputation, people just won't want to do it. And oh, yes, that, 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 that looks, um, you know, we, we must try and get over that point. So I had to basically completely redefine the passenger ship design to try and make this ship have that 40% extra premium. And I did that by taking the public rooms that on the QE2 were up near the top of the ship, and I put my public rooms very low down. I increased their height, so it made them very grandiose. But it also meant that on top of those two cabin decks, no, two um, public room decks, I could put my first passenger cabins, which could have balconies, and I wouldn't be worried about the sea encroaching on those balconies because they were so high above the waterline. And the balconies are the premium fare that negates this 40% premium. Uh, so see, by maximising <clears throat> the number of balcony cabins from low down in the ship all the way up with the mathematics of the economics of, of running the ship showed that um, yeah that would work and therefore I was able to design and build the liner rather than a very compromised cruise ship. Yes I think you have explained Dr Payne now the difference between a cruise ship and an ocean liner. The ocean liner needs that extra strength hull pointed and a special bow to get across. And the QE2 did that so magnificently, didn't it? That's, that's right, that's right. And the crucial thing is a, a liner is on a schedule, 
where it has to get from A to B, whereas a cruise ship, because it's usually stopping off at various ports, if there's rough weather, they can miss out a port or they can go slower. You can't do that with the liner, especially if you're just going between Southampton and New York. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to get to New York or you've got to get to Southampton, whatever the weather. And if you don't do it on time, it throws the whole year's schedule out. So um, it's crucial that um, the ship is able to operate at the speed, whatever the weather. And that, that defines the liner. The ocean liner. And do you find that people are... Uh, that people like the idea of an ocean liner. I mean, we see all these cruise ships, some of which are rather, may I say, grotesquely large, whereas you've managed to keep the sort of ocean liner lines of the ship. Yes, well, the, this ship is very large. Um, she, she's not as large as some of the really big cruise ships now. When she was built, she was the largest um, passenger ship in the world. What defines it? She's in proportion. Mm. And she's got the pyramid shape where there's not much structure at the bow. There's not much at the stern. And all the heavy stuff, like the machinery and everything, is in the middle where the funnel is. And that's where the greatest buoyancy from the hull is. So along the length of the hull, it's not overstressed. A cruise ship, where you've got um, a lot of structure forward and they now push the superstructures right to the stern, underneath that forward and stern part, you've got no buoyancy. And so the ship is trying to bend and take in all those stress. So there's an inbuilt stress in those ships. Oh, my. And I didn't want that here because there would be enough stresses generated from the waves and everything. Yes. So um, <laughs> I wanted it completely balanced. And that's what this ship is. And uh, the testament to it is that she's had no structural problems whatsoever. Well, on that subject, I don't want to, this is one of the very important questions I wanted to ask you. I've been astonished all through this trip how smooth she is. It, it's unbelievable. I, do you know that on one or two nights I got up and looked out the nearest window, my deck, my camera doesn't have a window, to see if we were in fact moving? Yes. Now, she, how on earth did you do that? Well, she, she's very solidly built, yes. first off, so that, that, that helps a lot. Um, the pods... So we don't have traditional propeller shafts and supporting brackets. We, we have electric motors in a metal casing that hang underneath the ship, a bit like an outboard motor, something like that. But rather bigger, as I'm rather sure bigger, you're going to yeah, Well, 320 <laughs> tons each they weigh, wow. so they're, they're, they're the weight of a, a 747 jumbo jet. But that arrangement, as well as being a lot more um, fuel efficient, creates a lot less vibrationary forces and so the aft end of the ship is very very quiet e even though we have tremendous amount of power back there mm. um, this arrangement with the pods um, makes the ship very very quiet and then with with the tremendous strength any vibrationary forces that do enter the ship um, are dispersed along the whole ship so not one place has a, a concentration of vibration mm, I'm very surprised as well about how quiet it is lying in my cabin at night a distant hum very very soft um, and then the actual stabilizers are they they must play a big part well the stabilizers they they control rolling they that we can't do anything about pitching other than the size of the ship the longer it is the less it's going to pitch 
but the the four stabilizers will reduce an inherent roll from 25 degrees to three degrees in about half a minute wow and we can deploy these one two three or all four as required um, we tend not to deploy them when they're not needed because there there is um, a fuel penalty um, by using them. But of course, they do make uh, life very much more comfortable <laughs> on board in in a rough sea. Yes. Um, another part of the of the liner characteristic is that there's a lot more um, stability margin in this ship than what you'd have on a cruise ship. So she tends to move around a lot less anyway, mm. but the stabilizers are there just to to counteract that that rolling motion, which most people find as the the worst for the um, um, creating seasickness. Yes, I, well, I know a few people who said um, I'll never be able to go on board a ship. I don't have sea legs. I'm going to say you should try the Queen <laughs> Mary. You won't be sick at all. But there was a joke although it was very cross, that you made when you were doing your talk, that someone had said the Queen Elizabeth, the QE2, was a cocktail shaker. That's right. And I've been on the QE2, and it does move a lot, surprisingly, amount. Yes. Why? Um, well, she's, she, she's half the size of Queen Mary II, or okay. was half the size, um, a lot narrower, um, relatively tall, and it's because of um, all the additions that they added on top, they added a lot more sweets and the like, that that took away a lot of her margins and that made her what we call tender. And and that, that's why she um, tended to um, bounce around a bit. <laughs> the other thing I, I remember from your talk, Dr. Payne, was that you said that that film Titanic created a lot of interest in passenger liners where I would have thought it would be exactly the opposite. You would think so, but it, it's a real strange phenomenon that, um, in the, as I say, the, the 1990s, Kinnard's fortunes were going down and down. Not many or relatively few people were travelling on QE2. And then James Cameron um, brought out his Titanic film. And all of a sudden, there was a surge of bookings where... Um, people wanted to experience the, the romance uh, and everything of a transatlantic crossing. And that one thing made Cunard suddenly attractive to, to Carnival. Without that, Carnival would not have bought um, Cunard. OK. Good grief. OK, now we're going to take another piece of music. And I see you've chosen Shirley Bassey and her famous, almost her anthem, Goldfinger. Well, the reason for that is when we set off on the maiden voyage in January 2004, we sailed from Southampton all the way to Fort Lauderdale, the Caribbean. But Shirley Bassey was on board on the voyage to Lisbon, and she did her repertoire of songs, and, of course, Goldfinger is such an iconic uh, mm. song of hers, so that, that's why I've included it here. Touch. Suck 
a cold finger Beckons you to enter his web of sin That was Shirley Bassey and her iconic song, Goldfinger. Imagine hearing that on this very ship. Because there, the, there's a big theatre. Incidentally, my guest on People of Note this week, out in the middle of the Atlantic, is Dr. Stephen Payne, OBE, who designed the ship from nothing to what it is now. And um, you've certainly built a magnificent theatre on board. You've allowed space for a really big, almost Broadway-style theatre. Well, it was important to have various public spaces because uh, another definition of the liner is that you've got a full range of public rooms and a ship like this will always attract high-end acts like Shirley Bassey that, that we, we've just heard mm-hmm. and you need a, a venue in which to um, place um, performers like that and I wanted um, a venue where we could take half the passenger load so that with two performances, everybody would get the chance to see the show. So we've got that um, showroom, which is the Royal Court Theatre, and then there's uh, a smaller lecture theatre, which we call Illuminations, which doubles as the planetarium. We have a, a retractable dome, and that was the first planetarium at sea, um, about the size of the London planetarium, as, as in fact, um, which has been very successful. But um, the other large room on board, of course, is the Queen's Room, the ballroom, with the largest dance floor afloat, because um, invariably Cunard um, guests tend to enjoy their dancing. Mm. And mm-hmm. so that's that's why we have that room. So this ship is quite unique in having those three 
very large venues. The other particularly large venue is the Britannia Restaurant, isn't it? Uh, what, that's, is, is it a three-volume? It's a very, very large room, and but magnificently um, decorated. Yes, it, um, it spans the, the two public room decks on deck um, two and three, but there's a dome into um, deck four. Mm-hmm. So yes, it, it spans three decks in total. And yes, it's a magnificent room, and the, and the the idea of the room is that um, for passengers that like the sort of baronial hall type experience and want to be in a large space, they can sit in the middle underneath the, the well opening, but passengers who would prefer a more intimate experience, they can go on the mezzanine, on the, on the wings as it were, and there are platform areas that are much more secluded. So it, it caters for um, the choices that um, passengers may want. But, um, Dr. Payne, there are numerous rooms, aren't there? We're sitting in a room called, well, we're in a boardroom. The boardroom, Beautifully yes. appointed boardroom. There's the church room, uh, there's the Atlantic room. The church room, I think, is the cigar. That's right, that's right. <laughs> and the Commodore Club, and then a magnificent library, which you put right at the front of the ship. Yes, um, the library is the largest library at sea. It's got um, 8,500 books. Um, very, very popular with uh, Cunard passengers, <laughs> especially on the transatlantics where people want to come and borrow books and, and magazines and the like. So, yeah, that was a very important consideration to put that at the front of the ship. How much did you have to do with the actual decor of the ship? Because I'm, I'm, I assume you worked with all the steel and metal with plating and stuff. Yes. I, um, the interior designers had to work through me to um, with the um, decisions with the shipyard, and they asked my opinion on various things. And in fact... At the time, I was living in London when we were doing the design of Queen Mary 2. And in South London, there's um, a place called Elton Palace, which was originally one of King Henry VIII's palaces. Um, there's a large Tudor hall from that period. And in the 1930s, it, it was largely derelict. So the government of the day... Um, worked with the Courthold family, the textile family, and they built an Art Deco house adjoining to this this, um, Tudor Hall. And this Art Deco house um, has a lot of tremendous features. And I took the interior architects to Elton Palace to view this house. And various elements around Queen Mary too are actually um, taken from Elton Palace, especially the um, um, duplex apartments, the bedroom arrangement and the like um, is replicated from Elton Palace. Just talking about those, those are the very expensive, the sort of almost penthouse suites. Yes. Um, But you have catered, as I've discovered, for people on a more modest budget. So there are very comfortable cabins without a porthole on the inside that have all the sort of comforts that you would expect. That's right. For for a ship of this class, you even the cheapest cabin has got to be a high standard. Mm. So it has all the the basic amenities that you would expect: the television, the you know telephone, worldwide, and all en suite. And uh, it's you know QE two was the first Cunard Queen to be fully en suite. 
But when you think the um, golden age of the liners in the 1930s that we all look at and admire, very, very few people on those ships actually had private plumbing. Oh, and yeah. in fact, um, going a little bit further, Mauritania days and Titanic even, um, the cabins didn't even have running water. My goodness. So um, we've come on leaps and bounds, <laughs> yeah. and certainly this ship... Um, you know, there are no bunk beds um, like there were on QE2. Mm. So each of the the cabins is of a size that you can have two lower beds, which you can bring together to make a queen bed as appropriate. But, um, yeah, it's just... Uh, and thoroughly comfortable. Yeah. Let's not even talk about the food, because that'll keep us going for another programme. But I just wanted to fit in quickly, since our time, as always, runs out. You said something very interesting. I've often thought when a ship goes down the slipway, you know, people must feel rather um, worried. What if it fell over? But you said you tested it a few times. You blocked the front and the back and ran it down just to see if it did float, well, which I thought was rather interesting. In fact... Um what you described earlier was the ship being built on a slipway. Yes. Like the QE2 and the Queen Elizabeth, Queen Mary. And certainly when you launch a ship in that manner, it's the most dangerous voyage a ship will take. Because as it enters the water, there's a massive fight between the physical forces of, of the gravity weight of the ship and the buoyancy. And that's when a ship's most likely going to tip over. Now, with this ship, we built it in a dry dock, so we didn't have a slipway. But we started at one end of the dock, progressed to about um, a quarter of the ship was built. Then we blocked off the ends, flooded the dock, and moved that section that had been built thus far down the dock to a, a final position took the water out the dock and continued with the construction. It, it's just a production line in the shipyard that meant we had to start at one end of the dock and move down the other. Why not a slipway? Uh, it's so much easier to build a ship on the level rather than when it's canted an angle. Yes, of course. You of imagine course. that every single pipe, <laughs> bulkhead and the like, you've got to take into consideration the angle that... Um, you're building it on mm. if you're on a slipway mm. whereas um, on a dry dock you can do it without any um, problem at all absolutely and then the moment of launching how, how then do you launch the ship with the champagne I think I remember watching a video where the Queen it was electronic she was inside and she pushed a button and the champagne bottle crashed yes well the um, actual flooding of the dock in France she, she wasn't named there. She was just floated out the dock. Right, right. But it was when she was in Southampton that she was actually named... Um, and launched, theoretically. And, and launched, yes. Yeah, okay. that's there. Now, I want to end on a positive note, but I can't help saying this. What happens after the Queen Mary 2? Because, I mean, every ship presumably has a lifespan. Yeah, this ship... And I know um, you said the ship works very hard. She works very hard. Um, she has a design life built into her of about 40 years. Ooh, okay. So she's halfway through that. Um, and there will be refits along the way to ensure that she's kept up to a, a standard that uh, will continue to attract passengers. 
But then after the 40 years, like with the QE2, they'll have to find some alternative use, possibly as a hotel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, if, if that doesn't come to pass, then she'll be sold for scrap like many of the other ships. <laughs> Let's so, not think of that. Let's at not least, think of that. Uh, at least QE2 and the old Queen Mary are the old Queen Mary survivors, hotels. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, You can't right. scrap the ship. No, Imagine being... No. You'd be in tears. Oh, I was certainly would be, yes. So are you awaiting the call to design the next one? Um, I've offered, <laughs> but they told me that um, this has got many more years to go yet. Ah, so. good. Dr. Payne, it's been fascinating talking to you and also... You must be immensely proud wandering around the ship and thinking, oh, I designed this. How clever am I? <laughs> Thanks uh, to Blue not, Peter. Not, not, well, <laughs> no, no, it makes me very proud, yes, not only yes. for myself, but for everybody that was involved in the building uh, and my team as well, and obviously Cunard. But um, I always like to come on and see how it's wearing and what, what could I have done different oh, that's and interesting. improve yes, it. Yes. Yeah. You know, Thomas Andrews was on the maiden voyage of the Titanic to do exactly the same. Um, he was making notes throughout the voyage of what he would change for the next ship. So, Well, therein lies another tale. Yes. I'd love to talk to you about the Titanic, but we don't have time. I'd love to talk to you about the new Britannia, because you spoke very passionately about how there should be a new Britannia. There should be a new one as a trade promotion vessel, right. um, rather than Royal Yacht. But uh, yeah, no, I'm really uh, focused on that at the moment to get uh, interest in that project. Well, Dr. Stephen Payne, OB, thanks for talking to us. We're going to play out with What a Wonderful World, which I think could be a little of, sort of signature tune for you. Yes, well, being on the ship now, it's such a wonderful place to be. The weather may be miserable outside, but... But it's on only board, the first time. That's right, but on board here, it's a great experience. So what wonderful world, I think, is quite apt. Dr Stephen Payne, thank you very much. Thank you. Some of you young folks been saying to me, Hey, Box, what do you mean, what a wonderful world? How about all them walls all over the place? You call them wonderful? And how about hunger and pollution? They ain't so wonderful either. But how about listening to old Pops for a minute? Seems to me it ain't the world that's so bad, but what we are doing to it, and all I'm saying is see what a wonderful world it would be if only we'd give it a chance. Love, baby, love. That's the secret. Yeah. If lots more of us loved each other, we'd solve lots more problems. And then this world would be a guesser. That's why old Pops keeps saying... I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue. 
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.